0: A few years ago I was at a conference uh, in British Columbia and and we were, went out for dinner and the, the chef brought out these plates of uh, seafood which everybody at the table was just so excited about this except me because they saw delicacy. They were just drooling at the beauty of the seafood and I just saw a bowl of prawns that were looking back at me, it was like a bowl of eyeballs and tentacles and suction cups, and I was like, I am not really, wow. And I felt a little juvenile, because everybody was very excited about it, and I don't have a very distinguished palate, which is a bit of a, 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 a disappointment for Susan, because she loves, loves to enjoy various different adventurous things, and I'm pretty basic. But the thing is, um, I just don't have an appetite for seafood, and you can... You know, preach the merits of Malawi and you uh, can, you know, tell me that anchovies are amazing. But your seafood gospel is falling on dead ears because I don't need to be intellectually convinced. Uh, What I need is a transformation of my taste buds. And uh, this morning, we're going to look at Romans chapter 12, which is a chapter that begins a huge shift in the letter of Romans, which is about transformation. A transformation of the taste buds. A complete reorientation of the appetite that is something that God does by the power of his spirit and uh, his word and through his gospel. And we're going to take a couple weeks, actually, to digest Romans 12, because, you know, it's rich and... um, The whole letter is rich, of course, but we want to just take some time to really, this morning, think about what the Scriptures mean when they say transformation, when they talk about being transformed, and we want to look carefully and consider carefully what it means for us, in light of God's great grace, to be transformed. So Romans chapter 12, the first three verses. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters... In view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. This is God's word. Now, chapter 12 in Romans, as we've been working through it week after week, chapter after chapter. When you get to chapter 12, this is a huge pivot in the letter. This is a massive, powerful, noticeable, Serge baca sized pivot. Because for a le- if I just started talking about transformation right now, for those of you who are visiting this morning or new to, newer to Redeemer or haven't been for a number of weeks, it's kind of like coming into the middle of a conversation in a room and wondering what is happening. So I want to just take 60 seconds and orient you to why the letter shifts so significantly in chapter 12 to talk about Christians being people who are ongoing and increasingly transformed. See, in the first four chapters of this letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul establishes that humanity is in need of God's grace. We need God. We suppress the knowledge of God. We coronate ourselves as God we coronate other things as God we need God's grace that's the first four chapters you get to chapter five and it presents Jesus calling him the new Adam meaning that Jesus has come to succeed where the first Adam failed and Jesus gives us God's grace he lives the perfectly obedient life the perfectly loving life that none of us could ever live he dies in atoning death for our sin on three three days later the tomb is empty He raises from the grave, proving that he is who he said that he was. He ascends to heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father, and he rules over his church. So Jesus is the one who gives us the grace that we need. Jesus fulfills all of the requirements of God's law, and he hands us God's grace. When you get to chapter 6 and 7... After the radical need for God's grace is established and then Jesus giving God's grace is established, you get to chapters uh, 6 through uh, 7 and 8, and you realize that as Christians, we still sin. But now we have a new appetite that's being born in us so that we don't want to sin, but we still sin. And the good news is, though we still sin, God does not retract his grace. God doesn't say all bets are off. And so after the letter establishes that even though Christians still sin God will not retract his grace you get to chapters 9 through 11 which re- which reveals that God in his great sovereignty through all of redemption's history chases his rebellious children down by grace. And then you get to chapter 12 and it says okay now let's talk about transforming now in light of all of this. In verse 1 He says, therefore, and what I just explained was the therefore, the 11 chapters leading up to this. So we're going to look at three things this morning, the premise, the power, and the process of this transformed life. So first, the premise for the transformed life, it is God's boundless mercy, those first 11 chapters articulating this for us, that we give ourselves to lives of glorifying God, because we're mindful that we are recipients of the grace of God. And so this phrase, in view of God's mercy, it's the premise that produces the power. It is, reveals to us that we mature by marveling. We mature by marveling at mercy. It teaches us that spiritual transformation, as depicted in the New Testament, it's not instantaneous, of course, it's ongoing. In view of God's mercy means God's mercy is in view. It means that the goodness of God's grace, the goodness of Jesus, His love and mercy towards you, it's not in the peripheral. It should never be in the peripheral. It's always central. Therein is the premise that leads to the power for our transformation. We never get to a point where we go, okay, we got the Jesus guy, let's just put him to the side now. Got it, we're saved. We don't need to talk about him anymore. Let's just get about transforming our life. Now we're just a self-help group, and I'm just up here doing TED Talks that are kind of baptized with scripture on occasion. But Jesus has to be in the middle. When we planted this church, a year before, 2014, Susan and I with a handful of, of uh, well, you, a hand, handful of you who were with us planting, getting ready to plant this church, I was asked on occasion, and people would say like, are we really going to preach about Jesus every Sunday? Can you really take all the texts and get to the grace of Christ every Sunday? Well, here's the thing. If Jesus isn't sufficient to keep the attention of the church, what is? If Jesus, after a couple of months or years or decades in the church becomes kind of whole hum what else am I possibly going to preach about that's going to take his place that's going to motivate his people to desire to live to his glory it can only be his grace he can only be central and so we find that in view of God's mercy that's what Paul says therefore huge pivot in view of this keep this thing central let's look at how it is that we live this transformed life and so in his mercy God justifies and satisfies the deepest longings of your soul for identity, and belonging, and a sense of meaning. And so as a result, as his children, we don't need to do anything to justify our own dignity. We don't need anybody. We don't need to look to our friends, our colleagues, our employers, those who are educating us in school, our professors. We don't need to look at anyone like they're holding the key to our sense of dignity, our sense of identity, our sense of worth. We're not waiting on anybody to give us anything in order to feel justified and validated in view of God's mercy. Because he, has, he gives this to us by the, the, the goodness of his grace, it begs the question, what sorts of decisions are we going to make if none of our decision-making is being driven by, by the need to prove ourselves? What sorts of decisions will we make this week if the underlying purpose for that decision is not because we need to establish a sense of identity or meaning or validation or let everybody in the room know that we're important or intelligent? I mean, how might we go about decision-making if the gospel has quieted that part of our soul? How might we handle conflict if it's not being driven by a fundamental need to justify ourselves? How might we handle those in our lives who have wounded us and those whom we have wounded? How might we relate to these people? If the undercurrent that's driving the way that we think and the way that we speak and the way that we respond to them, if what's not driving it is a need to be important, validated, sense of worth, identity if the gospel has actually quieted that part of our soul? How will you think about your future? How will you think about what it looks like after you graduate high school or post-secondary or those of you who are considering a career move or those of you who just did a career move or those of you who are business owners who have difficult decisions ahead of you? How might you engage in all of those things? What sorts of decisions are you going to make? If actually they're not being driven by this, this thing that the gospel has actually already given you. In view of God's mercy, the Christian begins to enter into this transformed life. Which leads to the second thing. The second thing is the motivation. So the premise for the transformed life is God's boundless mercy. And the motivation to live the transformed life is gratitude. It is gratitude for the grace that has absolved all of our guilt. See, for the first 11 chapters, Paul went to great lengths to establish the fact, to announce the fact, to defend the fact that God does not shred the adoption papers of his children. The scandalous truth of the gospel, which is what Paul has taken 11 chapters to establish, is that once God has received you, I'll borrow from Charles Spurgeon, right, 18th century uh, theologian he said it this way once you receive God's pardon there is no end to his pardon and so because Paul has established the fact that there's no divine shredder when God adopts his children they cannot lose their adoption how might you relate to God in life with a sense of volatility and worry or security The answer is, there is what Paul has established for 11 chapters is we, as God's adopted children, ought to relate to our future with a sense of real security. The whole world may be in volatility. Your whole personal situation of what you've got to deal with on Monday may feel like radical levels of volatility. But the truth is, though, as a child of God, in view of His mercy... You have the gift of engaging in what you've got to deal with on Monday, not involatility, but a sense of tremendous security. And so, the the reason why this is important, the reason why gratitude becomes the motivator for the transformed life is because if you think what I just said was scandalously false, and if you believe that, no, actually, if I screw up enough, I can lose my adoption and God will turn me, then guess what your motivation is for transformation? It's not faith. It's fear. It's not gratitude, it's guilt. And guilt and fear are exhausting motivators. They do not work. Grace, gratitude, thankfulness, and faith, those are sustaining motivators. Gratitude will sustain your commitment to live to the glory of the one who saved you for your lifetime. Gratitude will sustain that motivation for transformation. Fear and worry that you sin and now you're back under, every time you sin, you're back under God's condemnation and all bets are off and maybe it's going to be over and maybe he's going to shred my adoption papers. Fear and guilt are not sustaining motivators to live a transformed life, to live to the obedience of Christ. They absolutely will not. And here's why. Because as Christians, we know that not only is God a God of mercy, he's also a God of justice. He's a God of judgment. The reason he's a God of judgment is because he's loving. If you love somebody and something is destroying their life, you're going to get mad about that. But if you tell me you love somebody and something's destroying their life and you don't really seem to care, I don't know how deep that love is. Because, you see, it is actually the destruction of something that brings out your sense of anger and that sense of wanting justice when there is injustice. So we know as Christians that God is also a God of justice. And so if when we sin, we think that the adoption papers can be shredded, we're coming back under God's judgment and condemnation. If you think that's true, which 11 chapters of Romans said it's not, but if you think it is, then you're going to relate to Christian obedience from fear. You're going to relate to ongoing commitment to transformation, not from gratitude, but from guilt. Oh gosh, I better pray or God's going to be mad at me. Oof, it's been a few weeks, I haven't shown my face at Redeemer. Better go there, punch my card, make sure nobody asks any questions. Okay, everything's good. The whole motivation is off. It's religious nonsense. It's useless. It's garbage. That's why Jesus said to the Pharisees, Oh my gosh, you guys are whitewashed tombs. You look fantastic and you're a rotting corpse of spirituality. It's nauseating to me, right? So the motivation for the transformed life, it's when it's in view of God's mercy, all of a sudden now, it's complete and utter gratitude. See what is the what is the picture that we have of God? Because Romans for eleventh chapter has been has been painting a picture. Is God presiding over his church with his arms crossed, displeased, coldly, until you turn to him in prayer? Or is he presiding over his church with his arms wide open, pleased, warmly? Which is it? The text answers the question, and Paul says, in view of God's mercy, in the 11 chapters, the tidal wave of grace leading up to this gives us a picture. The picture of God is that he has not... An angry ogre like father he's a patient loving merciful father and so the motivation for our transformation the motivation for obedience is not the fear of his displeasure the motivation is gratitude that united to Christ by grace and faith you already have his pleasure that's Galatians 3 Galatians 3 says God looks looks at you the way he looks at his son how he feels about you he feels about his son what did he say about his son this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. What is God saying about you when you wake up in the morning before you've done a thing? Is our arms crossed? You better pray or today's not going to be good. Or his arms wide open? This is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. That's the answer. And when you know that that's the answer, that's a completely different motivator for prayer and repentance and worship and scripture meditation and making Sunday a priority to come and to rest in his grace. I mean, that reorients everything. When you realize that you, you, there's nothing for you to be earning. Therefore, in view of his mercy, the text says, united to Christ as his adopted child, we already have his pleasure. You know, I, I coached baseball for a couple of years uh, when Nigel was younger. And, uh, you know, you, you, t- you teach the kids, you know, where the strike zone was. And I'd be in the backyard with Nigel or at the park with Nigel. And teach. This is where the strike zone is. If it's, a, you know, if it's a way up here at your shoulder, don't swing at it. You teach the kids this. Don't do that. Don't, don't tomahawk and swing it over your head. And then the game starts and there's pressure and it's a different than playing at the park. And there's the pitch and it's over and the kids are jumping and swinging. It. They, they forget the instruction of their father and they strike out. So what happens when, they, when you forget the instruction of the father and you strike out? Does the father say... You better find your way home from, from this, you know, Pee Wee baseball game because I sure as heck aren't driving you. No, granted, there are some parents in peewee baseball that precisely do that, but it's a very serious thing. House league minor baseball is a very serious. So, what is the response of the what is the response of the father? What's the response of the child? the The child can keep striking out. The father doesn't abandon the child. These are two different conversations. You're not you're forgetting my instruction. That's a problem. But my love for you is unchanged. And so what is the motivation of the child? The the child who understands that they're already loved by the father is still swinging for the fences, but it's not because, oh, if I hit this, I will gain the love of my father. It's, man, I want to hit this so I can look up and see a smile on my father. The motivation for us as his children, which is what Paul is establishing in view of his mercy, is because we want to put a smile on the face of our Father. This is what we want. Gratitude for the grace that absolves all of our guilt. Which leads to the third thing. The third thing is the process of the transformed life. Now, we're gonna, this is going to be the rest of the whole series because from chapter, I only took the first three verses to really hammer the premise for transformation because for the rest of chapters 12 through 16, Paul's like, here's what it looks like. And he starts to lay it out. And so this is why this is so um, key for us and beautiful for us. The process of the transformation life, the process is spirit-led and it's imitation-oriented. It's a life of love. And so when we look at the rest of this chapter, if you were to go home this afternoon and go, Paul just read the first three verses. I wonder what the rest says. It's very descriptive and it's very specific and it's actually incredibly practical. Right? It's transformation is both spiritual in our hearts but it works out through our hands and it's very practical. And if you call God your heavenly father then it may it, then it, it reasonably over the course of your life you will bear the resemblance of your heavenly father. If you claim the scandalous love and grace of Christ which we do, then it is reasonable That we will have a heartfelt desire to imitate Christ, driven from gratitude, not guilt. Driven from faith and not fear. Verse 1 says, he gives us the phrase of what this looks like, this transformation. He says, our bodies are to be as living sacrifices. And you've got this image of an Old Testament offering. Now, it's not a sin offering, because Jesus is the sin offering, right? 11 chapters to establish this. Jesus is the sin offering. So that we're not giving ourselves as a sin offering. But there's another kind of offering in the Old Testament that Paul invites us to picture here. It's a burnt offering. In a sin offering, they would cook the meat and they would actually eat it. You would consume a sin offering. There was an element of receiving and internalizing what was given for your sin. Right? And Jesus has reinstituted that in the Lord's table. The sin offering, he was the sin offering. So we're not that. But the burnt offering, you didn't eat it you just put it on the fire and you left it there until it was entirely consumed. Kind of like how some of you barbecue, right? You just, sometimes it's tender and yummy, and other times it's just straight up biblical. So when you, was I projecting there? Is that how I, um, so it's a burnt offering. It's a symbol that Paul's giving. He says, give yourself as a living sacrifice. This this symbol of giving yourself wholly to God. And it, the burnt offering, you gave, you looked at, for the best in your flock, and then you, it was consumed. It was, it was a way, it was like God was saying, it was, it was a picture of trusting utterly in God's provision. It was like God saying, you can give me your best, you can trust me with your life, do not hold back anything, and watch how I provide for you, because I am the God who doesn't hold anything back. That was the premise of this kind of burnt offering. So why is Paul giving an, uh, a Hebrew illustration to a bunch of Greco-Romans? You remember who this letter is written to, right? The letter of the Romans is written to Romans. So why is Paul going, I'm going to reach back into Israel's history and pull out this Hebrew example for these Greco-Romans. Why did he do that? Well, there's a reason why. If we could go back in time to appreciate the Roman worldview, why Paul's writing this, if we could get in a 1981 DeLorean, get to 88 miles an hour, go back there and see why would Paul do this? It's because the Greco-Romans Believed that the body was bad and the spirit was good. The material was no good and the spiritual was good. So you were trying to escape the material. So what Paul does is he's like, okay, when I talk about transformation, and I talk about the transformed Christian life, and I talk about this renewal, when well, I'm going to talk about sacrifices day to day, so I'm not going to say present your soul a living sacrifice because that's abstract and it's ethereal. So I'm going to write present your body a living sacrifice, because that's very concrete, that's very practical, that's very tangible. Day to day, your neighbor, your spouse, your kids can feel, in very tangible and practical ways, your transformation, because it's going to come out like God's character, increasingly being forged in your life, not by you, by the power of the Spirit, the guidance of the Word, and that's going to be felt by the people sitting around you, as the Transformation continues over the course of our lives. So this is why we can't, you know, it's going to look like um, God's love and wisdom, his mercy, his justice being brought to whatever you're up to on Monday. All right, so that those who are around us are, are blessed by the love and the generosity, the kindness and the care. This is why the Christian faith is a communal faith. This is why you can't be a Christian in isolation. You can't be like, oh yeah, no, I love Jesus. I'm totally a Christian. I'm good with God. It's just the ridiculous, stupid hypocritical church i can't stand so it's just me and jesus are good over here i'm just gonna stay away from those crazy people and everything's good well how are you going to transform as an island it's not possible in fact all of the hypocritical christians around you driving you nuts are a god's gift to part of your journey of transformation of learning to become more patient and loving and caring and the ability to get outside of yourself this is why we need the community. This is why the people in this room. This is why when we talk about membership at Redeemer, we're like, "Yo, we're serious about this." You're not committing to an organization. You're not committing to follow Paul Dunk, the pastor, in some weird cult-like way. You're committing to loving the people around you because therein is what the means that God uses for for tr- for transformation. For us to love and to care, and it begins in the church community before it extends out into the city. Uh, um, and our extended communities, God does it here. So you just look at this text, and you find he uses the word, We're a li- it's a living sacrifice. That communicates that it's ongoing, right? In order for there to be continual sacrifice of self, there's got to be a continual dying to self. And this continual dying to self is, and you see that next phrase there, holy and pleasing to God. And for something to be holy and pleasing to God, that, that speaks about our, that's a reorientation of our aim. Because the default setting is not to be holy and pleasing to God. The default setting, go back to Romans 1, holy and pleasing to ourselves. That's what we want. You have a conflict with your spouse, your kids at work, you got a moment, attention a moment. The default setting is to say, if there are any hurdles here to my comfort, they got to go. I mean, this is kind of what I'm up to. This is kind of my life and my schedule and how, kind of how I see the world and anybody willing to fit into this is fantastic. And anybody not willing to fit into it, I'm sorry, but they just got to go. The default position is not holiness pleasing to God, because what, the, what does holiness pleasing to God mean? It means an outward-facing life of love for our neighbors, right? It means, it means that I, 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 I reject the me-first default position. And so this is what it looks like. He goes on to say in verse 1, Look at the phrase. It says, "Your true." this is your true and proper worship. What an interesting line. Some of your translations may say uh, other things because, of course, in every language there's a range of meaning. You can say it in various ways and still be true to the text. Your true and proper worship. Well, I'm going to give you the Greek here. He actually, he says, this is your logiken worship. And the word logiken in the Greek is logical. This is your logical worship. That's a funny way to talk about worship, isn't it? This is logical. It's like... Uh, Spock wrote it or something. But what what is this, what is he getting at? What does he even mean by logical worship? What Paul is saying is, again, you have to remember, he's written for 11 chapters on the scandalous grace of Jesus. And he's, you know, the only rational response to grace is to live to the one who saved you in grace. The only logical response is to give yourself completely to the one who saved you single-handedly, to the one who saved you definitively, to the one who saved you Eternally, the only rational response to that grace is to give yourself wholly to Him, and that's going to look like loving Him, worshiping Him, and, and loving others. And then in verse 2, He says, We'll be able to test and discern what, what the will of God is. What is the will of God? This massive thing, there's libraries written on the will of God, right? Well, in view of God's mercy, God's will is very encouraging. But if you actually just remove all the conversations around God's mercy and what that even means, and you just go, what is God's will? That is not going to be encouraging. It's going to be utterly paralyzing. So let's look at this now. If God's will is walked out in view of his mercy, then his will is not simply about what you choose to do next. His will is fundamentally about the driving force underneath what you choose to do next. His will is about who you are becoming by His grace when you choose to do what you do next. To be able to discern and test what God's will is and then do it is fundamentally about why am I doing what I'm about to do? And What is the way in which I'm about to do this is really more God's will than about the the thing that you do. Some of the decisions you need to make may be moral or ethical. You might have to be making decisions based on perhaps your relationships or your employment where you're like, I need to do something that uh, I cannot compromise my integrity. I need to make decisions that are ethical and moral according to the guidance of God's Word. Some decisions fall into that category. But most of the decisions of your life, most of the things you've got to face on Monday, aren't really moral and immoral decisions. It's really more a question of, what is the why am I about to do this? I can make a decision because I, you know... I want to live to God's glory and I want to please him and I want to love this person and make a particular decision to, to handle a situation a certain way. Or I can be driven by, you know, fear and insecurity and, whole, and make a completely other, you know, make a completely other decision. The will of God, to test and discern what the will of God is, the context of that is in view of his mercy. In view of what he has done for you, in view of what he is reforming in you, to go about making these decisions not paralyzed by like, you know, you think about, I, I often think back to the, the very first job that God gave somebody in the Bible, which was scientific nomenclature to Adam. Hey, Adam, name some animals. And when you watch how that plays out, you just see God not, in, not, not interjecting. You just see him bringing the animals to Adam and saying, use your creativity, your ingenuity. I'm just curious as your loving father, what you choose to do in this situation. And it's not like when Adam was like, I, this is a giraffe. God's like, mm, I was thinking more of, and so that every decision that you got to make is like, oh, I gotta get, I gotta grab onto the thrones of heaven and you know the the horns of the altar and really make sure this is the, you know, in most of the decisions, God's like, you're standing in my will, you're my child, I love you, I've saved you, I've given scandalous grace to you, and this short little life, this challenge you're dealing with on Monday. Is, is, is a speck in the, in the, in the, time, in the eternity we're going to enjoy together. So use the wisdom and the gifts and the grace that I've given to you and make a decision that's pleasing to me. The will of God is to be, to be tested and to be discerned, and that has much more to do about the reasons why and the way in which we go about the decisions that we make. Unless, of course, the decision is one that's contrary to the wise guidance of God's word. And so we're supposed to recognize, he says, he gives, gives us these two patterns. Don't be conformed, but be transformed. So two patterns are put in front of us, right? Patterns of thoughts, patterns of desires, patterns of ways. There's two ways to go about it. how you can do that. And to be conformed, uh, that word means to, to take the outer shape. So don't look at the culture and then allow that to shape you, to fit yourself into its mold in the way of thinking or, or, or desiring or choosing, but to be transformed by God. And the word transformed in the Greek is where we get the English word metamorphosis. Well, metamorphosis is not an external change. It is very much an inward change of, of uh, an inner uh, transformation and a reality of becoming actually something new. Um, you know, I, th- I thought I'd explain it this way for the, for the kids that are in the service this morning, the young students. You know, here, I'll say something really controversial to explain why Paul uses this Greek. Okay, here it is. Here's the controversial statement. Optimus Prime according to the Greek, is not a transformer. He's a conformer, because he's the same. He, he says, Autobots roll out. But then when he's a truck, Autobots roll out. He's the same. Megatron must be stopped. Megatron must be stopped. We've got to get energon cubes. We need energon. Huh? He's the same. I know I'm trying you know, some of the 80s kids are like, whoa, son. I love Optimus. But he's a conformer. He's he's the same guy. Tr- if Optimus was a transformer, then he would be like, "I am Optimus Prime, leader of the Autobots. <laughs> I am Optimus Prime, humble servant of Bumblebee. Can I get you some washer fluid, perhaps an oil change?" That! Now that would be radical transformation. Like this is a different guy. You understand? That's the Greek. So, being transformed by the renewing of the mind, we can't transform ourselves any more than we can give ourselves new taste buds to want the seafood. So what God does is he gives us his spirit to empower our transformation. He gives us his word like a new menu to guide our transformation. And as we ingest the word of God, as we live in worship and in community and in communion with God, we are increasingly continually transformed so that more and more we develop an appetite for the ways of God. We begin to live our life and make decisions driven by our appetite for the ways of God. And as the word of God gives us a picture of how we ought to live, it gives that picture to our hearts and our minds, the spirit transforms the governing influence of our hearts and our minds. Our imagination is captivated by God's love and grace in Christ. We are captivated by the example of love and grace we see in Christ. And more and more, we will be compelled to emulate what we see in Christ. So may we, in view of God's grace and mercy, offer ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, for this is our true and proper worship. Amen.